The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 32. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting, and we've got everyone's favorite boomer in his Patagucci jacket today, Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, this is this is my favorite part of the week. Um, just want to thank everyone for coming out to the live event in Vancouver. Uh, we were blown away uh several you know a couple hundred people sold out barn uh the drinks were flowing it was a great time uh we're just amazed that people kind of flew across all across the country to, to fly into vancouver to come see us you know chat for a couple hours very humbling um so yeah we want to thank you again we'll, we'll definitely do more live events we're kind of thinking maybe we do like an annual loony hour live and kind of you know figure out different locations maybe each year or something like that so Looking forward to that. Um, I don't know if you guys had, before we get into this week's show, if you guys had any initial comments on that, uh, the event there. Keith? Rich? Keith. Oh, me? Um, I'm just really grateful that everybody was so engaged and so willing to have such honest and open dialogue about difficult and, um, you know, some contentious and um you know maybe some uh, unacceptable views were were shared and i think it was done in good faith and i think i learned a lot and i'm just really humbled really i think that was it um and ho- and i feel now i have a responsibility to keep pumping out some good content and to share and to learn and to yeah that was it just wanted to say thank you so thanks for everybody who showed up and uh we'll keep going keith i loved how rich was dressed for a date <laughs> <laughs> Was, I love that part. It was pretty good. Yep. No, but, uh, but seriously, for everyone, uh, thank you for everyone for coming out. It, it was it was a lot of fun, as Steve and, and Richard just said as well. It's very casual, great conversations. So when we do this again, um, if you want to go to the next one, come on again. We'll get a, a bigger place. But if you weren't able to make it to the first one, just come over and it'll be a lot of fun. You know, we don't know when we'll do it again, but we will. And, uh, you know, we're really looking forward to it. So oh. there, where we go? Off we go. By the way, we've got some big news here. Uh, the Looney Hour now has an official website uh, that is launched publicly. So www.thelooneyhour.ca. Um, great website. Um, a couple of local Halifax gentlemen put it together. So uh, extremely thankful for that. But let's kind of dive into this week's show. Um, I, I'm kind of getting tired of man. It feels like it feels like when we first started the show, we were like. Well, we're going to talk about inflation and like, here we are, you know, 32 episodes in, in Canada's, you know, CPI inflation just printed like another record. Uh, what is up? 6.8% year over year. I think it was the highest since the nine, 1991 One or two. I, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a bunch of metrics obviously that, you know, had, had importance that were highest since the 1980s. So I mean, I'm just kind of going through my notes here, but we had, um, so for example, so inflation can at 6.8%. Shelter inflation was up 7.4% year over year. That was the largest increase since 1983. And then you have food inflation, 
which is extremely important and I think has societal and political implications. Food inflation running at 9.7%, uh, at least at your grocery store, is running at 9.7%, the highest since 1981. Uh, so obviously putting the Bank of Canada in a very peculiar situation. But Rich, I'd love for you to unpack the data a little bit further. We were kind of joking on, on Twitter the other day uh, because of, you know, food inflation at 9.7%, but they had like, wasn't it like food at restaurants is only up like six and a half percent or something. Yeah. So table, so the, the, the three categories, um, so the three subcategories are fast food and takeout restaurants. Then it's like food from stores and then table service restaurants. So fast food and takeout restaurants, it was up 6.7%, which is laughable here. This, I mean, I, I cannot, I do not That's believe insane. that the local, uh, shawarma place that I go is up 25%, right? It was nine 30 or for somebody uh, was know, calling I, on Twitter the other day about uh, chicken donair prices at their yeah, local, yeah, that's right. um, uh, but it's just like, it's at least 30%. I, this idea that it's fine. I mean, I don't know these people, I, what, what restaurants we need to find out. We need to go to Ottawa and figure out where these stats can guys go to the, go where, where they go to eat because it's very cheap there. And then the other things was from stores is nine. It was like just basically just under 10%. And again, I, I you know, I grow, I do gross, I do the grocery shopping in my family um, and um, for my family. And it, that's, it's absurd. I mean, it's at least, again, at least we're talking, I think it's at least 30%. Um, and then from table service restaurant 6.5, again, uh, you know, who knows what these numbers are, but yeah, Man. I think it's, it's wild. I mean, I'm not saying I could do a better job, but I know we're bad number when I see one. <laughs> the dine, dining out is getting so expensive. Even Keith can't afford it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think though, with, with the, with the, the guys, the stats Canada who are doing the inflation numbers, you know, I think they're eating, you know, the white bread with mayo and bologna sandwiches. Yeah. I, think. I don't think they the, go out to eat. Tim Horton's chili. Um, but there's what there's the other, there's two things I really wanted to stress one, which you touched on quickly, which is the shelter component. We've talked about this before and I, um, you know, shelter is the largest component of the CPI basket makes sense, you know, rent and mortgages and all that is usually people's largest outlay. Um, that just continues to ratchet, like it's accelerating. So there's, even though obviously it tracks rent and house prices somewhat, and we're seeing some softness in the housing market, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, it's going to, there's a lagged effect, obviously. And that shelter component um, is now contributing, you know, 3% basically to the overall inflation number, which is just, or, or even, so it's a shelter was 7.4. So shelter, you know, 7.4 times, you know, 39 or 0.39, and then you get the, the contribution to core and it's just an incredible number. And so this is one of the underlying reasons why I thought it wasn't going to be transitory and it's, and it's playing out as sort of we expected, thank goodness, or not thank goodness, I guess it's bad, but anyways. Um, and then the other thing I think just, I'm going to hammer this one home on and on because a couple of weeks ago, some of our politicians are starting to criticize the Bank of Canada. I think the, the most important technocrat um, in the country deserves scrutiny, um, at least as much as your favorite hockey team, if not more. And the idea that you cannot criticize what's going on there, I think is wrong. The Bank of Canada um, years ago in their in uh, rightly uh, created things, uh, three preferred measures of core inflation. They're based on one of the model estimate ones uh, trimmed mean. And I always forget the third one. Um, but you can look them up. 
Um, and these are meant to be the key. Well, they're called, they're literally called the three preferred measures of core inflation. There's loads and loads of papers that you can find online and on the website. And these measures continue to climb naturally as, as, and it's just, so, you know, the idea that they either didn't know that inflation wasn't transitory or that, and then the fact that they, once it became obvious again, according to their own preferred measures, the fact that they didn't raise rates, I think is just, um, it does, it is warrants the, some of the criticism, if not all the criticism that we've heard, but yeah. So, so the preferred measures are now five, four and three respectively, um, and rising. Um, and then the, the last thing, which is, I think really important, which is actually good news, maybe on the inflation front is something I track a lot, which is the producer price index actually just came out a, a few minutes ago. And that's, um, it leads core inflation by nine months and it's rolled over significantly. And so, you know, oh, we, dis we discussed this before. I think we are actually seeing the, the peak of this inflation impulse. Okay. That's well, so I, yeah, that's, that leads me to my next question is I want to ask you because we've been chatting about this. And it seems like I, I will admittedly say I was a little bit early on the sort of peak inflation call. Uh, I mean, part of that was kind of the, the war in China just being stupid, but uh, do you, do you have like a particular, I mean, it's good. I cannot going to hold you to this, but do you have like a particular month, a quarter that that yes, inflation afternoon will peak. afternoon on thursday no like do you see that peaking out like is it like next month is it like i mean we're getting really really close yes we are i i can actually i can i will i promise to share this chart for the youtube um viewers on youtube i think by the end of the year so my number is probably november december will oh probably, that long from a rate of change perspective yeah i mean the chart that i i mean listen anyone who works with me and knows me knows that I don't like models. I think people fall in love with models and, you know, and, and I can go on and on about why I think I'm very, I don't like to rely on them. And so my model is, is just a very straightforward and simple relationship that has worked very, very well. It's core producer prices, X energy, and it's year on year change has more or less predicted core inflation. In Canada makes sense. If you, you know, it takes time to feed, through um, the high, the most important commodity price um, prices, it takes time to feed that through into other consumer products and the rest of your basket. It takes a while, six to nine months, and so we've already seen the peak in producer prices in Canada. Um, and so I think it'll take six to nine months from now. And six to nine months after May is November or December. Oh, sorry. And then do you have, uh, do you have the U S speaking out earlier than Canada in, in your base case kind of thing? I'm, I think it'll probably be around the same. I'd, I'd have to check. Um, yeah, it's probably around the same. I think okay. the U S is probably is, is, is might be earlier just as a function of having a much stronger currency as we've seen. Um, but, and then their producer price index has already started to come off. Keith, slightly. do you want to chime in here? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that is sort of in line, Rich, with market expectations for when central banks will peak. So those that are raising rates. So we're looking at, I mean, so right now, oh, by the way, everyone, so um, June the 1st, the Bank of Canada is out. So uh, another week and a half. So one more loony episode, loony hour episode before we can place our bets what's going to happen Twinkie bats right. are on the line <laughs> yeah right now it's uh it, it's pretty well locked in 
for uh, 50 basis points coming up. So uh, we'll, we'll see what you two guys get together with. We're to doing go. a pred- prediction next episode. Think, <laughs> yeah, next episode is going to be gonna be a lot of fun. Um, but the other thing, because I think we we talked about this two episodes ago, or maybe in Vancouver. I don't I don't recall. Um, and it's kind of funny because because you know Rich and I be going back and forth for this for a little bit, and is it happening? Is it not happening? But uh, if you look at the comments from the American head of their central bank, is it last week? You know, he he's basically saying, yeah, we're gonna. The only way we can stop inflation or slow is by crushing the economy. He didn't say the word crushing, right? But it, it sounds a lot more dramatic when you know when, when you say that. We're gonna we're gonna crush it. But uh, you'd crush the economy in a number of ways. And one, one way, it, it is the wealth effect. And it, I, I do believe it has an impact. And uh, so with everything coming off hard now, um, that is going to affect the economy. So maybe when in inflation is, you know, we're peaking based on what you just shared with us, Rich, it, it might be when you know, the lagging indicators from the economy. So whether we're looking at you know, quarterly GDP growth or even monthly you know, ISM data and, and other spending data, you know, maybe we are reaching that peak point, maybe Q3, Q4, and then central banks should roll over as well. I'm still under the expectation that if we get to that point without a significant crisis occurring beforehand, I'm going to be shocked because I think things are just wound up so tight here all, all around the world. Um, you know, whether it's the Europeans or, you know, in the US or I think maybe in Asia as well. But by the way, I think the financial stress in the world, it, it's more acute in Asia, uh, sorry, in, in Europe, as well as in, in China. I think those are the two markets, you know, that could, you know, really zip things around, which would affect Canadians. And that's one of the things that we keep talking about all the time. You know, what could cause the Canadian marketplace to experience stress or the Canadian banks to experience stress, which we have to talk about the banks in, in a few minutes, of course, Canadian mm-hmm. banks. Um, but you know, I, I continue to expect it'll be, you know, and in, what's the sign you, know, this, you see somebody like how many days without an incident? You know, you have one of those. Yeah, it's been four days without a, an injury, is it? On like a, on a factory floor or what have you? Oh, yeah. I'm yeah, going yeah, to start one of those uh, Twitter accounts. It's like it all just tweets is like, just like, have we had a financial accident yet? <laughs> no, we, no, we can do no. that. But I think though that accident event, it, it will for Canada, it will be triggered from outside of Canada. And I think that's what a lot of our, our listeners are starting to appreciate about our conversations that, you know, we talk about things that are happening around the world, but it, it everything is so interconnected these days that something from outside can affect us inside. I think that's the key thing to, uh, to look at right which yeah we're gonna we're gonna get into here shortly because there's a whole bunch hey, of before, before we go on to that i'm sorry just a really quick one because keith said you know we're waiting for a sort of a financial accident or some kind of crisis um likely from outside um i mean haven't we sort of ha- ha- had one i mean i'm looking at it now the russell 2000 which is a u.s small cap index is down 26 percent nasdaq 100 is down 26.9 percent Bitcoin, God love us, is down, you know, 52%. Um, you know, I mean, does that not count as far as a financial accident? You mean, or you mean more something in the credit space or how, how would you define that? Yeah, I, I don't, I, those, those market metrics are accurate, but those are financial markets. And like it or not, like nothing has broken. Like the yeah. market has gone down, right? We, I agree, I agree. 
it, it, it happens, right? In, in my, for my definition of a market accident, a, a major player in this space, they go under. Ah, so remember okay. when like Home Capital Group got in trouble a few years ago in Canada, which was a bit of a, if that happened today, I bet you the contagion would be significant. At that time, I was just think of them with their underwriting skills. They're like they're pushing the boat out, you know, quite a bit. Uh, but for today, for example, it would be again if, if some country like a major had, hedge fund blowing up or something. Yeah, because again, like you know, you got the tentacles, you know, you know, reaching around everywhere, and like we'll we'll feel it, and you won't know it. You only know it with hindsight. I said, yeah, that was the event. It's not nice when markets go down, but they happen all the time. And uh, like I know a lot of people out there these days, you know, they they might be looking at some some numbers with a negative sign in in front of it. You know, if you're Canadian or American or wherever. But they, again, nothing has broken yet. Um, and by the way, I do think it's a real shame that bond investors, the most conservative investors across the country, you know, they've been you know corralled into these bond funds, you know, over, over the years because it's safer than the stock market and at the end of the day maybe they're a little bit safer because you know equities are down a bit but you know people are just been crushed in the in the bond world and the industry is responsible for that it's a big thing by the way it sort of leads into um i had, had a nice conversation with with a guy earlier this week uh, anyway his name is nick archambault he's a student there in, in the ottawa area he's asking me about you know, how to get into the industry and stuff like that. It's something maybe three of us can share our, our views on it. Cause I think a lot of people are trying to break into it and, or break out of it. Maybe if you're on the other side, <laughs> but uh, what was really interesting, you know, with, with the conversation and what I love about, you know, the younger generations today, my God, they're so smart. They're, they're excited. They're enthusiastic. And they just, you know, they just want answers. How do we do it? How do we do it? And, and one thing that really came up from the conversation was that, you know, again, I'm, I'm, you know, this is the way I, I lean, but I, I think it is a global macro world. You, if the more you understand that, the better you'll be able to appreciate why markets are moving in a different direction. Plus, if you want to stand out against your competitors, you knowing people you're going up for with, against in job interviews and, and stuff like that, if, if you're able to link, you know, global macro stuff, whether it's interest rates, you know, short end or long end or or inflation or the effect of energy. When you go for your interview at Mickey Dolls. Yeah, yeah, maybe not, but you know, but you know what I mean? Like, even if you're able to do that, you're going to stand out. And then the question was, what do I learn about this? And I said, mm, Twitter, you know, again, like there's no, <laughs> but that's just the challenge of that, right? Cause you have to really go out there and find it. Cause you're not going to find it in a textbook or like in a bank mutual fund quarterly report and stuff like that but or do you guys get similar questions you know over over over, over time oh, oh well i don't know i mean people always ask oh where well, you know where did you learn it's like i'm just i don't know like just i'm an autodidact like there's so much like good information that you can like get for free and or pay to subscribe to like i mean i'm i mean i love real vision and all these different podcasts i mean twitter like you can follow you mentioned Twitter, like you can follow like the smartest people in finance on Twitter for free. And like, and they also publish a lot of like free insights. It's, I, I just think it's incredible. Like the ability to learn these, are you eating a Twinkie? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Jesus. I am. It, it's actually Huck. good. I haven't had one yet. I bought if FYI for everybody listening back home. I did buy, buy I bought both these guys a box when they came here. So 
clearly you've taken that box home and there's, that's probably the last one left. Um, well, I mean, I just, for me on, on the, on the learning stuff, I think for me, I mean, I went, I, maybe I, my route was a bit more traditional, um, in the sense that I did finance and economics at McGill. And then I went and did my CFA. I applied to a (laughs) nerd. I applied to, I applied to a hundred, um, jobs in 2008 and just, you know, uh, you know, literally almost a hundred jobs. Um, and just, I ended up finding really my home at, at a company called BCA research, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure they deserve a plug, but anyways. Um, but, but the thing that only sort of take you so far, I think what you need to do is for me, what, what's always re- been really, really helpful is learning history. Um, and really, and I tell Nathan, my analyst, you know, you have to understand, you know, the Cuban missile crisis, you need to understand the oil embargo uh, in the seventies, you need to understand inflation and violence in the eighties, you need to understand the German reunification, and you need to understand Russian history, and you need to understand Japanese history, and, and why China hates South Korea, and why South Korea hates Japan. And, and I think it's, you know, you have to, to be good in this game. I think you really need to not just stick to quantitative methods and accounting, which are obviously very, very important. You need to understand the human condition. And for me, that's always been very, very, very high up on my list of things to, to learn. Um, and I, yeah. And, and I think that that's, that, that for me is the most, most important piece of advice I would give is like step out of the finance textbooks although they're useful and important, you need to understand humans because that's basically what you're doing. You're trying to predict what they're going to do. Ah, I think that's why of, it's, uh, sorry, but I think that's why it's so interesting well, today because we talk about, you know, like I like to say, we really are at a turning point and we're the turning, it's, you know, it's not the afternoon is taking place. Like it takes place over a while, Yeah. but we really have now, we've been at probably 15 years with zero negative rates and a lot, many parts of the world with, you know, money printing or quantitative easing, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, it's taken increasingly more debt to produce the same amount of, of economic growth, like the same dollar. And so everyone, so again, like I live close to a university. I was walking by earlier and they're all out with their cap and gowns on and stuff like that. And I think the more that you appreciate that the economic and financial geopolitical geopolitical world it, it it is turning right it, it happens but because it happens so slowly and all these things have happened in the past then you know most people they just don't recognize it they're just up too close to it so they're getting you know sort of clouded with all this day-to-day noise that that's going on but but again for anyone who's starting out or listening to this show um understand global macro because that's that's going to set you apart from everyone else now I, now, I also asked, I, I don't need 200 phone calls from eager students looking to work for me now. <laughs> That's why you have but, an assistant. Uh, he can, he can, he can uh, screen the calls. But I know Steve and Rich are looking to hire all the Oh, all God. Students, so, yeah. But wait, can I just touch on one more? On the turning points, I think I just want to refine that because I think that there's, you know, there's three things that people can, tangible turning points that people can go out there and learn about. Um, that might help them, which is the three of them that I've identified. And I'm sure there's more, but the ones that I identified, which is the geopolitics. So the relative power of the U.S. is going down, which is not, not absolute power, but relative. And obviously China 
you know, for a, for a long time there, for like 20 years, it was there was the only one superpower, America. And now the, the relative importance of that country is declining. That's one major turning point. Technology is obviously a major turning point. Um, you know, we talked I mean, years ago, everybody talked about the the Internet of Things or whatever, all these stupid you know, um, phrases, but it is true. I mean, the, that is a profound and, and, you know, maybe it's the fourth or fifth industrial revolution, whatever you want to call it, but that continues started a while ago, but it continues. And the one that I think we don't talk about enough on this show and something that people can definitely go out and read about, it's not a complicated subject, but it, it is important is the demographic change, which is, um, the age dependency ratio. So the number of prime-aged working people relative to the people who are not prime-aged working people. So young plus old, you know, divided by the people um, in the middle, 15 to 60. Um, that, for the first time since 1960, is starting, that ratio is starting to rise. I'm, hopefully I got the numerator and denominator right. But my point is, is that for 50 or 60 years, you had more and more and more prime age working people relative to young plus old. And now that number is shifting. So you have less and less and less prime age working people relative to young and old, which is going to change savings, investments. It's going to have effect on interest rates. Um, it's going to have effect on labor and wages. Um, anyways, sorry. I think that's a really fascinating turning point that we don't talk enough about on this show. Well, yeah, no, there seems to be um, a structural thesis that the power could be coming back into the working class uh, in terms of demanding potentially higher wages um, and sort of away from corporations. But I'd love to kind of chat a little bit further, coming back kind of full circle on, you know, Rich, you're talking about history. You have to understand people and humans and how they react. And we're at this very precarious time in history right now with again, sort of, you know, 30 year highs in inflation. I think we've got, we've talked about these, these structural shortages in commodities um, and that, that the Fed, again, the Fed can't pump more oil. The Fed can't, you know, grow more wheat. Uh, and, and so these are, these are issues that are, that are sort of surfacing and uh, you know, we're already starting to see um, you know, food riots in some of these emerging market countries um, and sad it's, it's, you know, kind of makes you thankful at times to be here in Canada. But I mean, there, there are real crises that are already breaking out. You just don't read about them or hear about them in sort of mainstream media, but there is real food problems uh, and oil shortages in some of these emerging markets. And there's going to be a lot of pain. And, you know, we're already starting to see now, like, you know, how do, you know, how do politicians react to this? You know, funny enough, again, like whether you agree with it or disagree with it, like, I don't know, I think we're going to get some form of helicopter money to, to sort of quote unquote fight inflate. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's possible. I think, oh, it's, no, no, sorry. I'm just shaking my head because it's stupid. <laughs> like, I mean, but let, let, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, like I'm going to get this guy obviously is, 
he's his own political party. Everybody knows what he stands for and whatnot. Like, I don't care if you like him or disagree with him, whatever. But, you know, it's just funny. I'm just reading a tweet here from Jagmeet Singh like yesterday. And he says, you know, Canadians woke up to see inflation at a record high again. When times are tough, people, not corporations, deserve support. Today, Parliament will vote on the NDP motion to give up to $1,000 to Canadians struggling with the high cost of living, right? Like, so they always choose the route of like, least amount of pain right like let's just give people more money which ultimately is going to make the problem uh even worse from an inflation standpoint um so yeah i mean that's kind of something i'm kind of watching very closely i I don't know if you guys have any thoughts in particular like keith i mean you you love ragging on you know europe the eurozone uh we all know it's going to a donut at, at some point uh you know but uh how far away how do you see them sort of grappling with with where we're going you know maybe persistently higher inflation sluggish economic growth do you think that helicopter money is is coming again in in some shape or form in in europe yeah absolutely so I, i don't see any way out for the europeans because they so right now they're i think they're creating a perfect environment to have increased uh domestic Disagreements, if that's the the nice formal way to, to word it, to put it. But um, I mean, they shot themselves in the foot now with with energy agreements with with the Russians and other kind of the Middle East. If the economies and climate continues to change, you're going to get millions of, of new uh, migrants coming up from Africa and in the Middle East into Europe, and then that's going to put further strains on on their systems. Uh, you need very strong economic growth and, you know, to try to grow out of a debt problem, which has never, ever, ever, ever worked in the world, despite always people always saying, oh, yeah, you can grow out of a, a debt problem. But they've been trying it for 80 years and it, the debt problem just gets bigger. So there, there you go. So, yeah. So at some point, Steve, I think they are going to have some form of helicopter money. Um, and it, the, the moment you do that, you know that, hey, the, you know, the, you know, the, the gig is really up. You know, they're, again, I just can't see how Europe can withstand this. And even now, like I, I know, again, like the, the Americans, whether it's the Treasury Department, you know, the Fed, State Department, you name it, they're all, you know, acutely aware of stress points around the world. And, you know, mainstream media are telling you right now, look, look at, you know, look at Russia and Ukraine, for example. Uh, but I know these guys are like even when, when Obama was in power, like he, he distinctly shifted the attention, you know, away from the Middle East, more towards China. And then Trump came on and he continued with that shift as well. Um, and I assume it is still happening within the Biden administration. My point is that, there, you know, the stress points over in China are significant. And now I also, I'm also hearing that the stress points within Europe are now significant as well, but they're different kind of stress points, not what, you know, the Americans will be concerned with, with the Chinese and, and the Russians, you know, in terms of, you know, a, a military conflict of some sort, you know, they're concerned that, Hey, you know, we, we have a partner over in Europe. Uh, so what was that population for, for the EU? 400, million plus, I'm assuming. It's the same side as America, right? Basically, when you, when you put it all together, you know, for better or worse, you know, they are allies, uh, but they have, I know the Americans have concerns about what's happening internally there. 
So from a financial perspective, I just see, you know, a lot of dislocations coming up and I like it because I, th I think the way that we're positioned, we'll, we'll make money from that. And again, it's, it's nothing we can do to prevent it because it is coming down the pipe. But there are, again, we've reached this point where things will, you know, sort of, what was that snap, crackle and pop maybe well, coming up. I'd love to just add to that point on dislocations. Um, Cause again, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but we've kind of been talking about this and someone asked us, you know, at the Looney hour Q and a session there, um, you know, about like food prices and, and all this. And, you know, natural gas prices have almost tripled uh, local fertilizer prices around the globe. Diesel farm, uh, diesel fuel for farm equipment is becoming unavailable. Uh, and again, we this is kind of leading into the, the, this food crisis. And again, I, I'm just I'm really struggling um, to see how I, Keith. We talked about like demand destruction from central banks. I'm really struggling to see how this is going to solve a lot of these issues. So, like, I just look at it and say, okay, like again, I'm trying to sort of play devil's, devil's advocate. I think they should have raised rates maybe to contain inflation a little, when they had more of an ability to do so, but like, so you were, we're dealing with like record food prices, inflation, because a lot of these, you know, so supply chain issues, uh, again, if you can't get, you know, gas, if you can't get diesel to, to, to mow your crops, how is raising rates going to fix that? And so now we're going to comp, now we're going to raise debt servicing payments on an overlevered private sector. And that's going to, fix these issues like you know now there's there's talks on in the media here that uh you know people can't get baby formula so it's like how's the fed gonna fix baby formula so i just i'm just struggling to sort of see a positive outcome here like the, the it, obviously the goal from the fed here and these central banks is to basically kill demand and put us into recession but i'm struggling to sort of see how that's going to materially improve the the, the day-to-day of everyday citizens well, I, I mean, it, it won't. We'll have to hit a low point and then we'll come through the sides. It's a normal cycle. Like economic cycles work that way. Some companies and industries will really struggle during this and others are just going to surge. Like they're going to eat someone else's lunch or dinner or supper, you know, depending on where you are. And uh, I think, again, I think that's outstanding. That's just the way a market works. You need to cleanse the system. I mean, to be clear, the market should have been cleansed back in 08, 09. And again in 2020. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, if you go back to 08, 09, I mean, again, hindsight is it's normally pretty accurate. Uh, but back then, politically, you know, they refused to let, you know, certain groups, banks, <coughs> go under. Was that bad? Let's chat no, about the banks. <laughs> banks. Uh, you know, you're not allowed to let the banks go under because, you know, once they sit in front of you, they tell you, boy, if we go under, you know, it's going to be horrible. But, you know, I, I like to use the example back then. Let's just use Canada as an example, you know, but, you know, the Canadian banks were hurt, of course, because if you're a bank, you're lev your levered entity. If you cannot get funding, you're over. It doesn't matter how conservative you are or, you know, how nice your bank logo is and, and stuff like that. If you're shut of funding markets, you know, you're, you're game over. Um, but let's just say they closed down the, the banking system in Canada because they all went under. Well, let's say it happens next month or whatever you know, in Canada. And, you know, they, they'd stand in front of parliament and say, you can't do that. You got to, you know, everyone's going to lose so much money and, and stuff. If you let it happen and then you put up a sign the next morning and say, hey, Canada is open for new banking licenses. Who wants to line up? Who wants to apply? 
you're going to get trillions of dollars lined up at the door, wanting one of these licenses. You get a brand new bank, you know, pristine balance sheet. They've learned from the lesson of the past and, and off they go. And you know, that would have happened with America, certainly with the Europeans and, and Britain. I mean, the British banking system, like RBS, like that's, that's one of the biggest walking zombies in the world. But if you do, if you let economics run its course, you know, you get the birth and then the, the prime age and the death of a company and then a, a new one will come in. But I don't know if any political group has the appetite or the, uh, the, the stamina, you know, to, to go through that. Because you can imagine the pressures that you're getting, you know, to bail everyone out. I think it's just, so I, I mean, obviously I agree with you. Um, my, my views on this are quite clear. I think that the problem for people, I think more generally, is they don't understand the mechanism by which that if a car company, let's say General Motors, goes bankrupt, you know, what happens is the equity holders are bust, the assets are still there. The patents are still there. The marketing team is still there. What you, and so this idea that you need to, for example, bail out company A that, or company B for the idea that it's like systemically important, I, I just think it's a misunderstanding of how bankruptcy laws work and how, um, and how value, valuable some of the underlying assets may or may not be of that specific company. Let's say, for example, that Apple, I don't know, went bankrupt tomorrow. I mean, there would be a, you know, a li- like it would be a, a line a mile wide of companies that were willing to, you know, swoop in like vultures and pick apart the carcass and all the technologies and all the things that you one might hold dear with respect to com- company A or company B, you know, they would be rebranded, refit. And, you know, repositioned and redeployed. And so, that I mean, that's what I think people don't really sort of get. You know, if Air Canada goes bust because we don't subsidize it to some insane thing. Well, I mean, trust me, there's, I'm sure, a half a dozen companies in Europe and the United States that would love to overcharge Canadians to fly from Halifax to Vancouver. Do you know what I mean? And I think that in general, people have not been sort of, made aware of that process. And so that's why I think there's so much political pushback just because people don't get it. If people don't get that, if the company goes bankrupt, it doesn't mean that those products stop being used or, or, you know, they just disappear into the ether. Um, anyway, sorry, Steve, I don't know if you had something to add on that. No. Yeah. I mean, I just going to say, I'm certainly not advocating for, you know, not raising rates or, or anything along those lines. I just think like the, the system is so, wound up now and everything is so interconnected because of the last 12 plus years of, of basically bailing out, you know, every single entity that, that may or may not, uh, you know, go bankrupt. So we don't really have free markets. We haven't for a very, very long time. So that, that's kind of my prognosis. Um, I just don't think, you know, vis-a-vis the Bank of Canada raising rates, let's say to, to 300 beeps uh, is actually going to solve a whole lot of issues. I mean, I definitely think we need a rebalancing in the housing market. So I'm all for that. But like I talked about this, you know, everyone's like, Oh, you know, this guy's just pumping his own book. I talked about this back in during the onset of the pandemic by, by basically the mechanisms that they took, which was, you know, these massive QE programs. Oh, nobody has to pay your mortgage for the next six months. Don't worry about it. I said, this is going to create, um, 
moral hazard, right? Yeah, like, because sure. we, we already had this 20, 25 year bull market where everybody's like, oh my God, you cannot lose on Canadian housing. You cannot lose. Look at 2008, 2009. Did you see like we went through like a six month correction, prices dropped 10%, the rest of the world crashed, but Canadian housing is rock solid because we're just the best country and we have all these immigrants and like you cannot lose and our banking system is the best. And like, so like there was this mindset that like you can't lose. And then the one time when we should have had like this, like real correction, like record unemployment, like what do they do? They came in and they, they plugged the ship. And again, so you create, and it was, everyone goes, well, look, we had a pandemic record unemployment and like you still can't lose. And so it just created this wave of frenzy. And that's why we had, national home prices ripped to all-time record highs inflating by 26 percent on an annual basis like i'm not i'm not sure you're being mean enough i think you're you're not being mean enough i think one of the things that's so i know this is a little bit of a a digression but one of the things that's so pernicious about a policy like serb you know i don't don't know what it stands for basically you were people were given handouts is that that money went from the bank the the government directly to landlords (laughs) Yeah. So like, so no landlord went bankrupt and you say, well, Rich, you know, people had to pay their rent. It's like, no, that's, that's like, you're not understanding the second order effects, right? It's a very short-sighted way of viewing things. If I owe you a dollar, that's my problem. If I owe you a hundred million, billion, trillion dollars, that's your problem. And, and instead of saying like, there's a moratorium on kicking people out, the asset holders have to take the, the hit they need to draw, which is in my view, how I would have done it, can't kick anybody out of the house for 12 months or 24 months and you they don't pay rent. And then anybody who is over leveraged and can't absorb some kind of cyclical downturn would have been bust and those assets would have been put back into the market and the cycle goes on and on. Instead, we've, you know, we were conned into believing that handing over money from the government to rich landlords was like a good policy. And I find that that's you know, it's not, it's not enough to say, you know, there's a moral hazard. It was an, it's an outrage. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's my, I, my would, I mean, it was that policy though. Like the whole like mortgage referral, I think actually like ultimately like arguably like benefited the banks the most. I mean, like yeah, at, the course, the, yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like the house is, is the bank's asset. Let's call a spade a spade. Yeah, um, sure. So, but Keith, I don't know. Did you, you also wanted to chat on Canadian banks too. That's right. But it's a good a good point though you just both made is that you know th- those programs were were done to bail out the banks, right? They weren't mm-hmm. bailing out, you know the, 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 the yeah the, the <laughs> you know the average guy or the, you know someone who's owned the building and stuff. It, it was the banks. They would have to take the hit. Uh, before we talk about the banks and the earnings coming up next week, uh, it, it just you know just something to highlight. I think people will I'll say it and will go oh, okay. So in, in the investment world, we're, we're really living in the future because it's disconnected from the economy. So if anyone listening to this or saying, man, you, man, those two young guys are crazy and, uh, and the old Probably guy true. is crazy, crazier, right? But, um, you know, in the financial world is forward looking, things that happen in, in our world, you know, on, on, our, on our computer screens and, and whatever, it, it takes a while to trickle into the real economy. So if you go out there now in the real economy, like everyone can get a job if you want one, like, you know, uh, lower income households. So they are suffering, trying to find housing, of course, that that's happening. But it's none of this, you know, death spiral that, you know, that is being suggested sometimes out there. So but just just so that people can appreciate 
financial markets are leading and all these turns that we see coming up, they'll be felt, you know, later on down the road, whether that's a few months or whatever. I remember a few years ago, back when, when the 08, 09 crisis was going on, when one of the guys to know he's using Toronto and um, he, he told me he was uh, like at one of the, 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 the gyms, you know, running on a treadmill or something like that. And uh, all of a sudden he just, he couldn't breathe. He had to stop. He was pointing towards but what's the thing on the wall? You know, they'll try to energize you up with the shocks and all that. What's that called? Uh, what kind of gym are you going? <laughs> yeah, you know? really? yeah, is this a free money club that you and Mrs. Ice Cap go to? <laughs> no, you know, like everyone clear. This is you know to get them, oh you know, EKG. To wake up the, no, yeah, there uh, you go. Anyway, he thought like that was happening, and you know, and they talked him down out of it. He went home, he explained to his spouse what was happening, and she's looking at him, said, "Like, what are you talking about?" He was like, "Well, look at the market and this, and you know, of course, it took you know a couple of months for it to really hit." So uh, again, like we're not you know that out of touch or off base here we're just, we're just sort of looking at things through the eyes you know f- from the financial markets um moving over to canadian banks other banks come up with earnings now starting next week most people are focused on you know what's the earnings number how much our money are they going to make uh and whereas like someone like apple or caterpillar you know those those companies um usually analysts are really good at estimating what they're going to make because the top line is the top line. You can measure channels, what it's going to be. Expenses are pretty easy to track as well. So there's not a lot of ways for a company to massage their numbers. And then you have banks. So it, it, one of the key things with banks, they have a bit of a, um, like in street talk, they have like a, a, like a smoothing bank they can use. So when things are really bad, they can take you know, reserves out of that to smooth things over. When things are really good or extraordinarily good, they can sort of take a little bit off that and put it in, you know, the, the bank to help them out. So we you know it's called provisioning on their bad loan portfolios or for potential bad loans. And if the bad loan, if it doesn't materialize, they can pull it back and stuff like that. So I, I, it's, it's very highly unusual for a bank, unless they're in a crisis moment, when they have to really just throw everything out, they should always beat the estimate that's coming out. So never be in shock and awe and say, holy smokes, you know, XYZ bank, you know, the blue shirt or red shirt or green shirt or, you know, whatever other color I missed here in Canada. You know, why they really beat earnings estimates. Like it's guys, it's not, it's not that hard. Like the goal is enormous. Instead, you want to focus on what are they doing for provisioning on their loan portfolios and, and, and what are they sort of uh, guiding everyone going forward for lending? So those are the two key, two key things to look for next week. And what you're going to see, their lending guidance is, is not bad. Like they're not seeing doom and gloom out there. You know, they're seeing like 10% plus lending growth. That's what they'll expect. Um, but you could see their provisioning start to increase a little bit. And, and that's the, the tell that you want to look for. So you can increase lending, but of course those lending standards have, have gotten more, uh, more strict. So they'll charge higher rates on the loans. You may need to put more down, you know, to get the mortgage and stuff like that. But next week for banks earnings numbers here in Canada, um, if you're like rich and you're a bit geeky and nerdy and stuff, you know, with, with glasses, which I've discovered Ouch. a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> You need to uh, get into these numbers and, and they're really fun to look at. And then you can see the behavior of the bank. So don't get 
you know, excited over the EPS number. Instead, dive into provisioning, provision numbers, and compare from one quarter to the previous to the next. Well, right, Steve? Well, let's chat about provisioning because um, I, I won't name the bank, but there was uh, one of the, the, the big bank economists there. Uh, it's not publicly advertised, but uh, anyways, the, one of them one of them is calling for predicting on internal discussions uh, a twenty percent decline and. In national home prices by the end of this year, um, which I mean, even for me, I'm a little bit skeptic and I'm, can be bearish at times. I think it's a little bit on a national level. Like, do I think suburban house prices in Ontario can drop 20% by the end of the year? Sure. A national, a national home price index, 20%. I think that's a bit of a stretch in the span of the next, you know, what, seven months. Uh, but one of them's calling for that. So I'm not sure if they're calling for that on their, on their lending as well. Like, and Keith, like you probably won't see that in their loan loss provisions, right? Like they're, they're so publicly they'll sort of put this illusion out there that, Oh, everything's great. Um, you know, one of the, so the three, the three mortgage insurers in Canada, right? You've got CMHC, you got Sagan, you got Canada guarantee uh, their unit application in April was down 40%, 40% year over year. And that kind of goes, almost coincides with, I think national home sales were down 20 plus percent in April. So I think lending volume uh, at at these Canadian banks, at least on the residential uh, mortgage lending side uh, should contract rather, rather significantly. I mean, it sort of had to, right? I mean, sorry, sorry, just really quickly, it sort of had to, right? We were at like sort of insane record I mean, insane numbers, right? I think it was at one point it was like 7.8 or whatever percent of GDP. Um, was in mortgage lending, right? In one year. Um, so, I mean, it's good. I mean, in a way, or sorry, Keith, go on. I think people need to understand, appreciate the way banks are put together and structured. And uh, it's getting better. But for years, you know, the economics department, like it was, it, it's, first of all, it's not a profit center. It's a cost center. So anyone in that world, you know exactly what I mean. This means it's what it means for a bank. It, it's a necessity that you need, but they don't really add any direct value to the rest of the bank. And that's because the bank isn't using their wisdom and, and guidance to make strategic decisions. You know, let's sort of explain, walk through how that works. But instead, uh, you know, the, the economic team, you know, you produce really cool stuff and you put it out there and you know, people like us will banter it around and then it's forgotten the next day because they put out something else. And, and again, but within the bank, because they're so large with so many different groups, like the investment team will not follow what the economics core team is saying and, and everything like that. For a bank, again, like you just say you're on the, you know, the consumer lending side with mortgages, man, you have goals to meet. And if you don't meet your goals, you're not getting the bonio, which so rich that means bonus, by the way, rich. Bonio. Rich doesn't live in rich doesn't live in a bonus world. No, not anymore. <laughs> Self employed uh, many years yeah. ago. Yeah. Sad. Poor yes. now. A lot of equity in, in the firm. Uh, but anyway, but but you're you know you you want to make these numbers so you can get a lot of disconnect with inside a bank. I mean, what's being push out there for an external message and what's internally. So, so again, like you might hear this stuff, like we see what you mentioned on, on the outside, but inside, like, again, you get their earnings uh, calls next week. That's where you can do the reconciliation. 
you know, from what they're really doing, what they're not doing. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention. So yesterday I was, uh, I was scheduled to have a call with uh, the CFO of, of a U.S. based bank. And, um, you know, really excited. We're about to get it going. And literally five minutes before the call, uh, he emailed me. He said, Keith, something urgent came up. I can't make it. <laughs> that was it. I haven't heard from him since. And was of he, course, is he alive? He's he probably doesn't, want to, he probably doesn't want to hear his story on the Looney Hour. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have that much reach. And uh, I assume his bank is still alive. But just to share with you, like at, at in the E-suite level of, of banks these days, there's a lot of stuff going on. And like it literally is like, like minute by minute on how fast and quickly things are moving. So if, if you're at that, you know, that CFO level at a bank and on the treasury side on the desk, like there, again, is, is the opportunity is there not only for you to go on the wrong side or the right side, but your vendors, people who you're doing business with, like say one of your biggest clients is, is a hedge fund and you're lending to them and they're levered 30 to 40 to one, something like that. And all of a sudden they got tripped up on something. Man, like that's how you get called into a meeting. And that's, that's what the markets are doing these days. So I, I, will, I will reconnect with, with my friend at, at some point soon, I hope. But, Bust uh, the goods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will, I'll never share what's, what's happening because that's, that's the business we're in. But again, like the anecdotal story, like there's lots of those happening these days in, in the industry because you know, there's a lot of volatility going but on it, out there. Well, I mean, just uh, anyways, everybody just wants to know, Keith, are we shorting the Canadian banks yet or what? Give us a scoop. Which one are we shorting? Um, no, but in all seriousness, uh, obviously, disclaimer, this is not financial investment advice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a good spot to wrap it up, basically. I mean, Rich, I don't know if you have any sort of par- final parting words. Um, no, just something we talked about briefly a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, we talked about financial um you know, accidents or whatever. And and we highlighted um, spreads, credit spreads. Um, We talked about how the bond market is much, much, much larger than the equity market. And one way to sort of sniff out or identify the potential for uh, financial accidents or crises, maybe that's crisis is too strong a word, but um, is to keep an eye on credit spreads. Um, And as we sort of kind of were... I mean, alluding to, they're starting to creep higher. So what does that mean? It means them. So something like um, a high yield, let's say triple C rated um, bond will have a spread now of eight, 900 basis points, um, even higher, I think in some cases over um, an equivalent duration, uh, risk-free bond, risk-free and in inverted commas, of course, a government bond. And so it's just something we we sort of um, we chatted about, teased um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe I think about a month ago, and just wanted to pay that off because they're starting to creep higher. So something to keep an dun, eye on. Done, done. Final teaser: <laughs> uh, the Chinese government. Uh, there's a lot uh, brewing behind the scenes, locking down their their entire country there. Uh, you know, working on side deals here with uh, cheap Russian oil. And, something uh, stinks there. Something stinks there for sure. And now there's a piece here in the Wall Street Journal, I mean, pretty reputable rag they have there, uh, talking about uh, the Chinese government encouraging um, uh, their citizens to repatriate uh, their capital and their assets. Uh, 
more more so the ones that are politically connected. I think basically because they're worried about you know sanctions and kind of what happened to a lot of the Russian oligarchs, for example, right? Like, oh, your assets are in the U.S. Mm, seized, and so uh, yeah, so the the Chinese government has kind of issued that statement uh, to 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 part of their sort of politically connected uh, people as well, and so basically encouraging. Uh, some of these these families and 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 their and their siblings and whatnot um, to basically uh, sell some of their assets and repatriate the capital. So obviously that brings uh, up into question parts of Canadian real estate, particularly here in Vancouver. Uh, wondering what what that what that might impact might be. Uh, so again, these are all the the big macro things happening behind the scenes. There's always something happening, something going on, and that's why we put the show together every week. So. We'll wrap it up there and, and we appreciate everybody's ongoing support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least one person, one family friend. Uh, let's continue to build the Looney Hour community. Uh, as we can clearly see from the live event, it is growing and growing at a tremendous speed. So uh, we are deeply humbled and we look forward to chatting again next week. See you soon.